Cable Smith, welcome everybody into SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show, presented by Mossberg Firearms. Little Whiskey Myers there for you today. Thank you so much for sharing a part of your week with me. It is a pleasure, a treat, an honor to be here talking hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. We've got a great show lined up for you today, and I'll uh, tell you all about it momentarily. But uh, first, I do want to remind you to check out my other show, Justified Pursuit, which I co-host with a longtime friend and my elk hunting buddy, Chisholm Cook. It's a show that will spawn the idea somewhere in the mountains of New Mexico on an archery elk hunt some four or five years ago. And uh, during the pandemic, we we finally sat down and decided to uh, make it a reality. It is not a hunting show, so to speak, but more of a a discussion of complex ideas and, and like social issues. So things like, uh, that I think are insane, like teaching kindergartners that they might be a a boy trapped in a girl's body, that, that kind of just evil filth. Um, so anyway, (laughs) has nothing to do with hunting or fishing. Some of you might be completely turned off by the idea. That's fine too. But if you're, uh, if you think like me, which it seems like half America does, then uh, you can find it at justifiedpursuit.com. And we're up to 30 episodes now, all of those available on iTunes and uh, Spotify. Um, Okay, what's on the docket for episode 580 of the Lone Star Outdoors show? Let me tell you, we're going to start off by visiting with Mark Schwabenlander, uh, CWD Research and Outreach Program Manager for the uh, Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach. What does all that mean? Basically, he's an expert in the field of CWD and that um, Prion Research and Outreach uh, Center has developed some groundbreaking technology as far as field testing for CWD. We'll get into all of that. Talk a little bit about, you know, kind of a refresher on what CWD is, how it affects cervids, how it gets into a herd, uh, all that stuff coming up with Mark. Then um, we're going to take a little trip with turkey hunter John Casimus, who recently completed the Grand Slam, the Turkey Slam, in a matter of like 40-something hours. (laughs) And he did it in four different states, flying all over the country. I I don't know when they slept, to be frank. How did this play out? There's so many things that have to go right for you to take four different subspecies of turkey in literally two days it's crazy uh but florida alabama i think he i think he went to the dakotas and maybe like nebraska or kansas i don't know he was all over the country and uh he'll tell us all about that it's a new world record taking the turkey slam in 40 45 hours maybe um pretty incredible and so uh we'll hear all about the highs and lows of what had to have been an energy drink fueled bender of uh a couple days there. So cool stuff coming up with John at the bottom of the hour. Let's do a quick giveaway. Um, Versicary, new sponsor. We gave away a holster last week. We'll give away another one today. 
the holster of your choice as they are the uh, new holster, official holster manufacturer of the show. And they've sent me a bunch of these things. They are awesome, by the way. 1911s, revolvers, Glocks, whatever. They've got something for everybody. Uh, And you can uh, just, how about email the word pistol, that's pistol, to lonestaroutdoorshow at gmail.com. We'll get you entered into this week's giveaway. Let's knock out a quick break. Coming up next, we're going to talk CWD with Mark Schwabenlander of the Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Never said too much about home or the bruises on his back. I asked him about him one time, but he never answered back. Hey guys, Cable here for Quiet Cat, the leader in e-bikes made specifically for overlanding, hunting, fishing, and remote access to the great outdoors. Quiet Cat provides outdoor enthusiasts a means of portable, low-impact transportation while providing you with the most reliable product on the market. I own a Quiet Cat, and it has surpassed all my expectations. It's an amazing machine that stealthily gets me wherever the hunting or fishing adventure takes me. Based out of Eagle, Colorado, Quiet Cat is able to put all of their products to the test, making sure your e-bike is built to last. Visit QuietCat.com or call 970-328-2399 for more info. Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Howdy, this is Robert Earl Keen, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We stepped out onto the golden sand. The sun was high but it now. Rented donkeys from an old blind man. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. We are all set to dive into some CWD discussion, always a hot topic among specifically whitetail enthusiasts, but uh, the disease spares no North American uh, cervid species, to be frank. Um, So, with that being said... Mark Schwabenlander of the uh, Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach is here, and we'll get into that uh, in just a second. But first, this segment brought to you by All Seasons Feeders, Blinds, and Smokers. It's grilling time. It's smoking time. All Seasons has an entire lineup of backyard barbecue essentials. I've been using the hell out of my smoker. Head over to allseasonsfeeders.com to see for yourself today. All right. Well, Mark, thank you so much for jumping on, man. It's great to visit with you. Hey, Cable. Thanks for having me on. Happy to be here. So where are you uh, joining us from? I am in the heart of the Twin Cities in Minnesota right now, and that's where I live and work, in my basement, in my home office at this point. Okay. Yeah, tell us a little bit about yourself as a, as a hunter, as an outdoorsman first, and then we'll, we'll get into your day job and the uh, research that uh, I'm interested in here in just a minute. Sure. Um, so yeah, I'm a lifelong hunter, outdoorsman. Grew up in the eastern side of Wisconsin and was roaming the fields and forests there since I was a little kid. Um, now I've been in uh, Minnesota for about the last 20 years and 
a lot of my outdoor adventures, hunting and fishing and chasing deer and turkeys is focused in this upper Midwest area. Okay. And uh, you, are you more of a bow hunter? Yeah, I would say I'm more of a bow hunter. Uh, when it comes to deer, I, I'll i use the muzzle loader, I'll use the rifle, but most of my time is bow hunting, um, hunting turkeys. I do a little bit of both, um, mm-hmm. but I find it, it it's a much easier with the with a shotgun than with a bow oh yeah well in the way that i like to hunt them is on foot and you know running and gunning uh, sitting in a pop-up doesn't really appeal to me as much so uh, 100%. yeah and it's hard to bow hunt them if you're running and gunning just because you're sitting under a tree and you've got to come to full draw with basically just the tree to you know uh, block your outline and that's uh that's a pretty that's a pretty good trick to learn Yep, I give those people props who can pull that off. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm more effective running and gunning with the guns. Than yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, so as far as your field, you're in whitetail. Well, is it, is it specifically whitetail research? No, not specifically. Okay. Um, so my position, um, I'm the CWD research and outreach program manager in uh, a center called the Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach, which is focused in at the University of Minnesota. And so really broadly, um, our interest is in prion diseases and neurodegenerative diseases in general. Mm-hmm. Um, r- right now, we are really focused on chronic wasting disease because that's the hot, hot topic. And uh, frankly, that's where a lot of the funding is right now. Um, but no, it's not specific to white-tailed deer. Most of the work we do is on white-tailed deer just by proxy because we're surrounded by white-tailed deer. Um, but we've done some work in elk and actually just talked with a collaborator in Wyoming this past week, uh, maybe doing some mule deer work too. Okay. And so I do have to ask you, though, you're a hunter. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of times in the scholarly world, it seems like that might make you a minority. Would that be an accurate assessment? Yeah, I would say, you know, in my, my current colleagues locally, regionally across the country, I would say that, yes, that, that is the minority. Um, I also I come from an education in wildlife biology and then kind of moved into veterinary medicine and now I'm in this CWD research realm. Um, Many of the people who kind of went that same path who were focused on wildlife and and are now looking at CWD, many of them are hunters. Um, but in general, yes, I would say that being a, an active hunter, you know, many, many people have had it in their family or maybe they hunted when they were a kid. But I, I would agree that, that, you know, I'm probably in the minority for sure. Uh-huh. I, don't, I, I couldn't give a percentage, but definitely minority. That's sad to me because, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago, it seems like everyone that was involved in uh, research and animal-based research, uh, certainly wildlife management. I mean, that's even a a bigger issue I see today is we have all these people who are more coming at it from an animal rights or uh, animal want to save the animals perspective and just totally – or off base with, hey, actually hunting is conservation. That's where all the money comes from. So um, I hope that trend reverses. For uh, yeah, it cer- 
Sorry, it certainly is a different perspective yeah. um, having that hunting hunting background and uh, partially I see it as an opportunity to help educate my colleagues. Yeah. And, and many of them are open knowing that I am a hunter and am a researcher. They, they look to me and ask me the questions about hunting and how does, you know, how does this work affect hunting? How does, what is the perspective from the hunter in this? And so I, I agree that I think that is an invaluable perspective when it comes to the research. Yeah. Well, yeah, it gives you an opportunity, like you said, to help educate. So I guess there's one, certainly a benefit there. Um, as far as the Minnesota Center for Prion Research, it's more, like you said, more than just CWD. Um, really focused on North American cervids, though. Quick refresher for folks that are not familiar with CWD. And we have talked about it quite a bit on the show over the years, but how does CWD attack a deer or an elk or, you know, name, name the cervid, but how does it actually attack the animal? Yeah, and I, this is... This is uh... This is a question that we get a lot, you know, the, the base question of what is CWD and what is a prion? It, it, it's maybe one of the most confusing parts and makes the disease um, difficult to manage. But, you know, at a very basic level, uh, chronic wasting disease is part of uh, an array of diseases called transmissible spongiform encephalopathies and big, big long words, essentially, mm-hmm. um, these Prion-based diseases, in the end, affect the brain. Um, but the prion itself, uh, you know, interestingly, all mammals have prions in their body. We as humans have them, deer have them, their dog has them. They're, they're normal uh, structures uh, that are part of the cell and help movement of certain materials in the cell. When it comes to the disease part, the... The, the prion that we call, call infectious is essentially the same makeup of, as a normal prion, but it has a different shape. It's been misfolded, and those are what cause the disease. And so when that misfolded prion comes into contact with that normal prion, it causes that normal prion to misfold, and it's a domino effect. And over mm. time, then those misfolded prions build up they eventually make it to the brain. They kill brain cells and lead to what you see at end stage of chronic wasting disease. Okay. Um, I've never visually seen a, a deer that I knew was infected with CWD, but you know, even in Texas, we don't have as many cases or outbreaks as you guys do up in the uh, Midwest, um, for sure. Uh, but we do have them. But none of the hunters that have ever shot these deer could say, oh, yeah, I, I, he was acting funny or there was something off about him uh, or her. So, I mean, is it always fatal? And how long does it take to kill the animal? Like, what are the is – there, is there any way to know other than just the, you know, the post-mortem uh, uh, um, tissue sample that, that hunters often have to send in? Or in some places, you know, it's check, mandatory check stations. Yep. Yeah. And so what we know about the disease is that it is 100% fatal. And that's been learned from um, penned animals that, that they have studied over the length of the disease. And so from the point that that animal gets infected or those misfolded prions come into that animal, it takes a year and a half, two years before 
that animal shows those physical signs, mm. you know, the, the weight loss, the incoordination, it takes that period of, you know, about two years for that to happen. But the reality is in the wild, it's very rare that we see that. Um, and the, the biggest reason is that during that period, those animals are likely going to be killed by something else. Somebody's going to shoot them. Um, they're going to get hit by a car. A predator is, is going to get them. Because frankly, as that disease progresses, it's not necessarily uh, visible to the human eye that that animal is is diseased, but it might be acting slightly different, which makes them maybe a little easier to hunt, maybe a little easier to get hit by a car or to be caught by a predator. Mm. So to your point, in reality, hunters aren't going to see many um, animals at end stage. It does happen. Um, we've, you know, we've seen a few in this state where it's been reported a sick deer, it's thin, it's, it's um, acting like chronic wasting disease, and it turns out to be a positive deer. Okay. Well, like um, EHD is a pretty quick killer, uh, episodic hemorrhagic disease. And there are, I mean, there's a lot of cases in Texas where people like said that deer's not acting right. Boom. Then of course the test of, yeah, it had EHD. Um, so I guess that's one that's just a common disease that is, uh, you know, sometimes visible to the observer. Uh, how does CWD get into a herd like okay we've got this herd boom they're fine then all of a sudden you know we have positive cwd cases like uh is it something that lies dormant in the environment like anthrax or i don't know break that down for us yeah there's there's uh, really multiple ways that cwd can be transmitted um at, at the base level it's it's generally one of two ways where it's direct contact where a sick deer comes into contact with an, a healthy deer and they pass those misfolded prions to that deer, you know, from saliva or urine. And deer are very social creatures. So you have those doe groups that are interacting with each other. Maybe a buck comes through during the breeding season. So there's that direct animal-to-animal uh, -animal, um, contact that can pass the disease. But then there's also indirect contact where that sick deer throughout that two-year period, roughly, is depositing those infectious prions into the environment. And so with their saliva, with their urine, with their feces, ultimately, if they die on the landscape, that, that carcass, as you know, the natural progression of that carcass breaks down into the soil, those prions are still there. So another deer can come along and, at any of those spots and pick up those prions and that disease cycle keeps going. One thing we don't really understand is um, dose, you know, so does it just take one small dose for that animal to get sick or does it have to be repeated? It's just something that is not totally understood in the scientific world. But it, there's this, that's one of the hard parts about a prion disease is that they are, they do survive in the environment and so they could be in soil it, there's research that shows they're taken up in plants and um, frankly there's just multiple ways that those prions could be spread from animal to animal and spread throughout the environment mm. okay okay um, let's do this let's just take a quick commercial break I, I think we've got a good um, refresher there on on CWD and, and how it uh, affects 
a whitetail and, and gets into a uh, population. Uh, but we'll, we'll take a break, come back, and I want to discuss this, um, well, groundbreaking development and how we test for CWD. So are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Absolutely. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by First Light and the new Obsidian Foundry Pant. It's got knee pads. It's got vents where you tend to get a little swampy. That's right. Keep you nice and breezy in those areas. Uh, Water resistant. And you can find the entire new Foundry lineup at firstlight.com. We'll continue the CWD conversation with Mark Schwabenlander after the break on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cowboys in this bar On all those fools play guitar There's something nostalgic about the old-timey general store, and that's exactly what you're going to find in downtown Goldwaite, Texas, at the Mills County General Store. They're licensed FFL with rifle, pistols, and shotguns, ammo, gun accessories, hunting accessories, deer, corn, and attractants, sporting goods. They've got a wide array of knives to choose from, plus insulated apparel for both work and camo for hunting season, fishing supplies. They've got foods like Anchor Tea, grass-fed beef, Dublin sodas, gourmet sauces, and a whole lot more. Also, Ace Hardware. From wall to wall, they have it all. Check it out. The Mills County General Store right there in Goldthwaite, Texas. Hi, Brett Jepson here with Three Curl Lease Connection. I'd like to invite you to come enjoy some of Texas' best dove hunting just minutes outside of Dallas. We have many private dove leases available for this upcoming season, including milo, wheat, sunflower, and cornfields. Leases come in different sizes and prices, so we can fit anyone's budget. We have the lease that's perfect for you and your group. We don't overcrowd multiple groups into one property, and you'll have the first pick at renewing your lease for years to come. Please visit us at 3curl.com and click on leases for your property listings. That's T-H-R-E-E-C-U-R-L.com. Hey, this is the Pigman. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. When the sun starts setting, I'm down the road. I got 15 horses on a flat bottom boat. Making waves and jumping stumps. Just to see the bobbing of a big old Jugline, the name of that one from our good friend Justin Bowerman, bringing us back on. SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks to Mossberg Firearms as well, our presenting sponsor. Uh, we are still talking chronic wasting disease here today. We'll get back into that conversation with uh, Mark Schwabenlander of the University of Minnesota Prion Research and Outreach Center. But before we do that, this segment proudly brought to you by Mossberg Firearms and the Mossberg Patriot. They've got everything from uh, Henry's little 22-250 up to a 375 Ruger, which I took on my Cape Buffalo hunt. Everything in between. It is a rifle series that isn't going to break the bank. It's rugged, reliable. It's Mossberg. You can find it at Mossberg.com. All right. Well, let's get into this groundbreaking chronic wasting disease research headed up by Mark's team over at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Mark, appreciate you sticking around. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, let's talk about diagnostics. Yeah. So I, I was sent this article, um, started reading it, and it's from uh, going back to the uh, Minnesota Center for Prion Research, where you work. Uh, this article talked about some uh, groundbreaking development 
in the way that we can test for CWD, and I think it's called the RTQIC test. Maybe that stands for quick. Um, I'll let you talk about that. But uh, what what makes this technology unique? And, uh, and and you can talk about as much as you want about the process. Uh, I'm sure there's proprietary stuff in there that you can't share, but um, you can be as detailed as, as you're comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I, I guess where, where I'll start is what is being used for testing right now? And I think you, you mentioned it earlier, post-mortem testing is the standard that these samples um, from the animals are, are taken after they are dead. There is some work on rectobiopsies of live animals and, and whatnot. But the, the platform, the tests that are used right now are, are twofold. They're, they're both um, antibody-based tests, and one is immunohistochemistry, or IHC, and the other one is ELISA. So those are the, the known validated tests that are currently used, um, whether it's farm deer or, or wild deer, to test for CWD. Mm-hmm. Um, over the last probably 10 years, there has been new technology um, that looks not antibody-based, but more uh, taking how the prion protein itself propagates and working with that. As I said earlier, that when that misfolded prion comes into contact with a normal prion, it causes it to change, and there's that domino effect. Well, scientists have used the prion's ability to do that to create new tests where essentially you have a substrate of protein in, let's say, in a vial, and you add your seed or your sample, and this might be um, a lymph node sample that is positive for CWD. You put that into that vial, and over a period of time, you shake it, you heat it up, and you shake it, and you heat it up over 24, 48 hours. Hmm. And the natural process for those prions is to come in contact with those other pre- those other proteins and cause them to misfold. So over that period of time, you see that small seed of prion protein, um, misfolded prion protein growing, and yet that can be measured. And so that that is the basis of RT Quick. And uh, that is really coming on strong as probably the next test that will be used regularly. The USDA is currently validating that um, on the same postmortem samples that are used for IHC and ELISA. But there's a lot of research work that's looking at samples that can be used from um, live animals, too. There's yeah, that's the important thing here out. is that this yep. could be a, a actual live uh, field test. Absolutely. So RT Quick has that has that ability. Uh, there's a recent paper that came out on ear punches, um, uh, showing usability for an ear punch to detect CWD using RT Quick. It can be used on feces, blood, environmental samples, um, and so that's really a platform that is up and coming, and will likely um, be used regularly. You know, in the next five years or so as the test to detect for CABD. Okay. But, along, but alongside that, there's research groups like ours who are working on the next generation test. You know, what, what's coming after RT Quick? How can we keep improving on these diagnostic tests? Uh-huh. 
And so you you said uh, I think you mentioned the turnaround time there, but what was it again? So the the test itself with RT Quick takes roughly um, 24 to 48 hours to to get a result. There's processing time in there, of course, too. But you know, really, it's it's done on a 96 well plate platform, and so there there is the opportunity for RT Quick to provide faster turnaround than than current testing. Okay. So, I mean, I have a couple obvious questions. Uh, you mentioned like an ear punch, but like, so if this was going to be in the field for wild deer, how would it be administered? That's a good question. And so that, that is, honestly, that's one of the limitations of RT Quick uh -huh. um, is that it's, it, it, it's laboratory based. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like it'd be great for captive bred deer where you, you kind of can control the, what's going on. Yep. And so, th th again, it it's, uh, comes back to it could be a faster turnaround. The other piece with RT Quick is that it's more sensitive. So you have the ability to detect more positives mm -hmm. um, than current testing, but it is still laboratory based. And that's where some of the other work that we're doing and, and other colleagues across the country in trying to get to that field-based test. And we had a breakthrough um, this spring on a, on a test that we're calling MinQuick and giving it the name from Minnesota. So M-N-Q-U-I-C, um, kind of a play on the RT Quick mm -hmm. words, where we were in the field, we were at a DNR field station and used um, new technologies and, and new testing methods to, again, test test samples from harvested deer and have a result in 24 hours in the field. Again, that's where we start is we start with those harvested deer and then we keep building that platform to be able to utilize it in other samples like ear punches or blood or something like that. So, you, so with the MN quick, you do not have to send it to a lab. Correct. So that's that's the vision with with the min quick is that the the footprint is smaller, um, the equipment that is needed is not as big as expensive as current testing and RT quick. So it, it's kind of that step in between where uh, at it, say a DNR field station, um, this testing method could be in place where the the Hunters bring their deer there. A sample is taken, and they can get the results in 24 hours. It would it would cut down some of the time um, that we currently have, and so it's kind of a in between step of where we are now, with sending samples to a big diagnostic lab, and where we hope to get in the future, where potentially a hunter could have a test in their own hand. This is like um, reminds me of I went to Africa in February. And we had this huge uh, freeze in North Texas, oh, kind of locked up a lot of Texas. Mm -hmm. And you had to get a, a PCR, PCR, yeah, PCR test, negative yep. PCR test before you could go. Well, I had the appointment; it had to be within 72 hours before you could get on the plane. And I had multiple appointments scheduled at like CVSs and you know pharmacies. Um, well, of course, they outsource all of that to a lab, and so we didn't have power across much of like certainly the Dallas Fort Worth area. Well, no, they were all like, yeah, we can do the blood work, but we, we don't, 
we can't get it to the lab and because they don't have power and you're not going to get it back in 72 hours. So it was like, all right, we almost had to just delay the trip. Finally found one place that just did all of the lab work in-house. And mm-hmm. so that, that's, you know, it, we had the results within like two hours. So it just reminds me of that uh, applying it to my, my own uh, situation in February. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the COVID testing situation is a, is a perfect, uh, maybe not a perfect parallel, but it's a good parallel just to see in a little over a year's time how far science has come to be able to detect COVID. And I was just reading that there's, there is, you know, home tests that are, that are being developed. Again, there, you know, this is, COVID is a virus. It's a little easier to work with a virus than, than a prion when it comes to these things. And a ton of money was thrown at all of that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the general idea is the same. And um, so in, in our lab, we've developed this MinQuick test. That's kind of that in-between. But we also have several other lines of research that look promising. And we keep pushing forward to get to that pen side or animal side test. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. What is the benefit to the actual hunter to have a quicker turnaround time on a deer that they've harvested? Yeah, that's a great question. And I I think there's multiple benefits, Um, you know, from a hunter's perspective, thinking, thinking about myself, particularly if you travel, you know, even if, if I travel from the twin cities down to the Southeast part of Minnesota, where, where CWD is, I can't bring that whole carcass back home until I have a negative test. Hmm. Um, That's a great point. You're you're either out of buddies or you're in a hotel waiting. Absolutely. So one is carcass movement. That that makes it easier on the hunter, but it also reduces the risk of spreading that disease if you have that answer. The other piece is we've been talking to a lot of hunters, um, and, you know, one of the questions that comes up is, how often, how quickly after you harvest that deer do you consume it? You know, for some for some people in some cultures, they're eating that deer the same day. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, you know, people who are sharing that deer among several hunters, that deer could be gone in a day or two. And in in order to, you know, each person has to make this decision on their own. But if you don't want to consume a positive deer, then having that answer as soon as possible helps in making that decision also. Yeah. I don't know anybody personally that would be like voluntarily sign up to eat a CWD positive deer. Um, I, we don't ever have a confirmed case of it jumping from deer to human, but uh, you know, it's just like if I shoot a duck with rice breast and I could see those parasites, I'm not eating it, you know? Yep. So it is interesting. And you said this is more, uh, the the MinQuick technology is more affordable. It is. It's it's more affordable on the level of the equipment that is needed. Um, you know, it's it's roughly a third of the cost of the equipment um, that's needed for RT Quick. Okay. Um, and it's it's more affordable than the current equipment for Eliza and IHC. And are you guys able to mass produce it yet? So no, at, at, you know, at this point we're really in the early research stages of it. Um, you know, honestly, we had the idea and the breakthrough of it in late fall. Got all of our ducks in a in a row, 
um, working in the lab over the winter, and then we're able to ground truth it at the DNR field station um, in spring. So, you know, this has really been just developed over the last probably nine months, mm-hmm. um, and we're continuing to develop that. So, you know, honestly, to by the time this would could be in DNR stations across the state or across the country, it, you know, it's probably a couple of years out at this point. Okay. So actual, certainly groundbreaking stuff here. And uh, when I read the article, like I said, I found it fascinating. Um, that's that's basically all I have for you. I, I, I would ask if you wanted to um, plug y'all's website or if there's like a resource where folks could keep up with the uh, the developments or, or just learn more about what you guys are doing. Absolutely. We do have a website. It is minpro.umn.edu. Um, on that website, it explains who we are and what we're doing. Um, I'll make a plug that there is a place for people to donate if they're interested. Um, we are we are currently looking for money to to have specific MinQuick field uh, equipment because right now we take the equipment from our laboratory to the field, and so that slows down our process and our in our research. Um, but yeah, that website explains what we're doing, and we're also pretty active on Twitter. Perfect. Well, awesome stuff, Mark. Thanks for coming on and, and sharing uh, this breakthrough. It's uh, great to visit with you and uh, always love uh, visiting with another hunter. So thanks for the time today. Absolutely. Uh, pleased to be here. All right, buddy. Have a great day. You too. Thank you. All right. There he goes. Mark Schwabenlander of the Minnesota Center for Prion Research and Outreach. That segment of the show brought to you by Big and Jay. I told you last week they've got a brand spanking new lineup of apple flavored and scented whitetail attractants. Even their uh, BB Squared, the most popular attractant they have, you can get that in Apple as well now. You can find it at BigandJay.com. Coming up next, we check in with a hunter who recently set a world record for taking all four North American turkey subspecies in under two days. John Casimus joins us right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. If I'm not acting like myself lately, doing things that I don't, not sure why, but you want to hate me. It's just a spell, I suppose. Our night vision and thermal imaging has been helping hunters light up the night for over a decade now. I've been with them for quite some time. Back in the early days, thermal optics were pretty expensive. You might not realize it, though. The average guy can get into a thermal rifle scope these days very affordably. I've got the Thermion XP50. Absolutely love that scope. It's got a diverse color palette, lots of options to choose from, whether you want white hot, uh, black hot, red hot, you name it. There's tons of options, literally. It's got internal recording as well, and it's got internal and external battery options. So you can hunt all night without having to worry about running out of batteries. You can find the Thermion XP50 as well as their entire lineup of thermal and night vision optics right there at PulsarNV.com. Spawn is right around the corner. Your reels have been re-spooled, and the tackle box is ready to roll. But the question is, can your truck handle another season of pulling your boat in and out of the water every weekend? 
Call David Boone at Third Coast Diesels. He'll make sure your truck is not what sinks your next fishing trip. Offering a widespread array of diesel parts and services, call 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com today. Radney Foster bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show presented by Mossberg Firearms. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks for dropping by today. As you know, turkey seasons are wrapping up across the country. Uh, unfortunately, I already miss it, but there have been a lot of interesting things that I've seen or heard or experienced myself in the turkey woods this spring. And our next guest probably takes the cake when it comes to all of that, having just taken all four turkey subspecies that's right turkey slam in literally like 40 something hours uh so john casimus of alabama will be here momentarily but first this segment brought to you by sci the worldwide leader in big game conservation i'm a proud member and here's why sci continues to put its money where its mouth is they are out there protecting our rights they are educating the public on why sustainable use hunting is conservation, and of course, advocating for conservation across the board. For more info, check us out at safariclub.org. Let's bring on our next guest here to talk some turkeys with us and specifically get into this amazing feat, which he accomplished this spring. It is my pleasure to welcome John Casimus to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I'm glad we finally got this worked out. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, so you are joining us from Alabama. That's correct. I'm in uh, right outside of Birmingham today. I live in Birmingham uh, there and then also my farm down in southeast Alabama. But uh, we, are, we are in a warehouse south of Birmingham, about 30 miles. Okay. I haven't been to Alabama in a long time, but we had some family friends growing up there that lived in, uh, I want to say, Alexandria City, maybe? Yeah, man, down that's a beautiful place. It's on a big lake and yeah. uh, one of the prettiest lakes in America, and um, that's a nice place to be. Alabama is a state full of uh, hunting tradition, I will, I will say that. Yeah, and great football. Yeah, <laughs> that is true, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, and uh, great football. But you know what? I, as a Baylor fan, I always, you know, it doesn't bother me when, when A&M gets their ass kicked by Alabama every year, so – I know. I know. It doesn't bother me either. I remember <laughs> when I was playing at Alabama in the um, late 80s, we played A&M and it was the 12th man and all that. And I was I think I was returning a kick or covering a kick. I don't remember. And anyway, one of those guys had one of those. Uh, I blocked this guy and really made a good block on him. And when I got him on the ground, I ripped his 12th man towel off of him and took it home with me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That, that is awesome. funny. My grandfather went to A&M, so, and I don't know, I just never liked the Aggies, but so we always had this, uh, and they always beat Baylor pretty good, but times have changed for us. Uh, things are on the up and up. But uh, anyway, wanted to talk turkeys with you today. Um, I got an email from our friend Andrew Howard, and he said that you had just broken like a, a world record when it comes to turkey hunting, uh, pursuing the, the Grand Slam. So I'm I guess that's uh, Rio, Eastern, Merriam's, and um, was it? Um, 
Osceola. Yeah. Yep, that's right. So it was uh, where you where where did you where did this quest take you? And what first of all, what sparked your desire? to i mean a lot of people want to get a grand slam i haven't pursued it I, i'd love to do it but i don't really know if i'd like be like well i'm going to do it in as the least amount of time as possible so where what sparked that idea so i have a good friend of mine slade johnston that's a, a young man that i i kind of mentor i met him he's got it's got his mba at the university of alabama and i do some work with their business school and help them and anyway we got we met several years ago and he's an entrepreneur and owns a company called trips for trade where a guy like anybody could be us. I could trade a trip. I could trade a hunting trip to my farm, a turkey hunt at my farm for a turkey hunt in Colorado, or mm. I could trade a condo visit to go deer hunting in, you know, in, in Texas, whatever. So he sets up trades for trips and things like that. And he had really gotten in his head that he had heard about these guys that had really had done the world, done the uh, grand slam in a really fast time. And uh, in any way, uh, he goes, Hey, why don't we try to break the world record and you go try to, uh, kill the grand slam in the fastest time that's ever been done. Huh. And, uh, and it was, we we're going to do it in 2020. And of course, COVID derailed everything. And so, and I, I had COVID like March of, uh, early March of last year. So it's one of the first cases. And so anyway, we didn't do it. And then there he came, he called me this year and said, you want to do it? And I said, yeah, let's do it. And, but I said, Hey, well, if we're going to do something like this, it's a little bit outrageous and it's, going to cost a significant amount of money to do it. I was flying my airplane. I was the person flying the airplane. And so the logistics and getting people to help us all across the country and hunting licenses and, and all the, the travel expenses. I said, we just don't need to do this. So I can go break a world record. I said, we need to do this and, and have it be for a cause and for a good purpose. And, uh, and so we decided to raise money for conservation and land and conservation and hunting um, and picked an organization to raise the money for and so we basically went out there and just raised funds from people that wanted to see this process done. We had a lot of great sponsors give away 20 something thousand dollars worth of giveaways. And so we were able to raise um, about 20, a little over $23,000 um, that we donated. Uh, I funded the whole trip myself. Nothing was covered by any person except me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had some great people helping us. And man, we started in, uh, we started in Alabama. So where did the where did where did you guys donate the yeah, funds? So we donated to the NWTF. Um, oh, perfect. Yeah, which you know um, has done a lot for land conservation over the years. And oh, yeah. you know, the thing about conservation and hunting is that um, you know conservation for hunting really impacts all animals, whether you're a hunter or not, and species that are being hunted. So if you're improving habitat for land for turkeys, for example you're improving them for every other type of animal that's out there and you are protecting land to keep it available for the public to be able to use for forever. And so we were, we were real passionate about that. And so we decided to, to donate the money there. And uh, we had a tremendous amount of, uh, of buy-in from the standpoint of people wanting to give money. And then also the engagement of, of this trip was, was pretty incredible. Okay. And so were you, did you guys film it? Yep. We filmed it. Um, we sure did and the, the video is on my you can access it through my bio in my instagram or on my youtube channel and i have a link tree on my instagram bio and you can go in there and it just says world record turkey hunt video and you can watch the video there ict creative group who filmed my cooking show that i do for spy point cameras um, called darn hungry uh, they were the guys that i hired to do the filming and they're just amazing amazing videographers and really good editors and so i think the the videos is pretty neat it's uh 
Um, it's got, you know, it's four different hunts all, all put together in the travel and how we made all this thing, you know, how we got this done. And, uh, and it's, it's a pretty neat, it's pretty neatly um, put together. I think it's a great production and, and we've had a lot of people watch it so far. I'll put the link on our website. I have not watched it yet. Uh, so looking forward to that. So yeah, where you guys started at home in Alabama. We did. And so here's the thing, what we wanted to do, we wanted to basically do this hunt based on the NWTF map. The guys that, that had the record in 46 something hours, they basically killed two turkeys in, um, in Kansas, in Eastern and a Rio in Kansas. And there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, there, there's purebred turkeys in, in both those places. And, um, and I'm not taking away anything from anybody else. I mean, this is not, um, this is not one of those, um, matches where you're trying to one-up somebody. This is just uh, everybody caring about hunting and passionate about doing something really great. But for us, and what I wanted to do is I wanted to kill an Eastern turkey over in the South because they are the hardest turkeys to kill in, in America, 100%. I don't think anybody that's ever hunted in the South and Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, Tennessee, how hard those birds are to kill. So we wanted to kill a purebred Eastern in the South. We wanted to go to Florida and kill an Osceola. And then we based the NWTF map where the purebreds were. And so we went to South Dakota for the Merriam and we went to <clears throat> Kansas for the Rio. And so um, we were able to take all four and we did it in, in about 45 hours. Oh, wow. So you, it came down to the wire. It did. And so what happened was we started in Alabama and we started at my farm. And so, you know, we were putting something like this together. You have to play all these scenarios because you have all this travel time and you only have a certain amount of time to hunt during the day. And then you have different seasons overlapping. And so the hard part about this hunt is we only had about eight to 10 days where all the seasons overlapped for um, these turkeys, these purebred turkeys in these different different counties and different states. Wow. And the hard part about that was Florida was at the last week of the season. So these birds where we were hunting had, had a lot of pressure. It was a small 40 acre farm in the middle of a big public hunting area that was private. Um, but the birds were still very, very skittish, even though they were living right by this man's house, um, a little getaway he's got, and they walked through the yard. They, man, I tell you, the minute you get out and try to start hunting them, it's a different story. And, uh, and so that was really challenging, you know, killing a turkey at my farm, which we have a lot of turkeys. I don't really hunt a lot, hunt them a lot. So they're really, you know, they don't get a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. But again, we opened that morning at my farm. We started, we had nine gobblers and I thought there was like one bird up in this corner of the farm and there ended up being nine flew down and we're all strutting. And we were on the wrong side of the tree facing a clover field and they ended up strutting in these pretty burnt pines right behind us. So we could not move for an hour and a half. And while they just put on a show, we were on a skinny open pine tree. We weren't in a blind. And so we couldn't move. We couldn't turn around and shoot them. But the irony in the whole thing is, is that we ended up shooting a bird at nine o'clock or 930, whenever it was at the back part of my farm that we called in pretty quick and an old bird. And by killing that turkey at nine, instead of like right at daylight, it bought us the last 40 minutes the following third morning for allow us to break the record um, because we had in, in South Dakota, you can legally hunt 30 minutes before sunrise. And so we had birds come right off the roost, came right in and I shot one and just the, the nick of time for us to be able to break the world record. If we had shot that Turkey that morning at, you know, six o'clock that morning, then we would have never broken the record. We would have done all that and, uh, and either had to start over again or, 
we would just have wait so so how we understand that so if you would have shot the bird earlier how would how would so if i shot the bird earlier because the so then we went that afternoon and killed one in florida then the next morning we shot one in kansas right off the roost so we had all day the second day and in theory we went we went to south dakota we flew right up to south dakota it was like an hour and a half flight um, when we got there, we were on turkeys within 30 minutes of arriving. You know, we had an hour drive to the ranch and then uh, we got out. And within 30 minutes later, we were on turkeys. And and I just sat in the wrong spot in a little swag. I couldn't see. It was a terrible setup. I, I know better. And uh, it was just, you know, we weren't really familiar with the land. The landowner um, had us and was scared for us to walk up this hill to get set up because he thought the birds were going to see us. We set up there and, it, and the cameraman and the caller they were behind me and higher than me and they could see the turkey when it popped its head over a hill, but I couldn't, <clears throat> excuse me. And so anyway, um, I could have run up the hill and just kind of ambushed him and shot him, but it would have been off camera and in the spirit of what we were doing and really wanting to have a, a really good hunt that we could get all the kills on video. I just didn't feel like in the spirit of what we were doing, it was the right thing to do. It was just a little bit, even though we were out for a record, I just wanted to make it a little bit more legit. And so we never got on a turkey that afternoon. So we were done. And so we went to bed, you know, that was, there was some crazy long faces. We were all really dejected, very upset, very bummed out. And then we started running the math and we had a clock and we we're like, okay, wow. Well, we got tomorrow morning to break the real, the record, our goal, we wanted to do it in 30, under 36 hours. Okay. And uh, that was two full days of hunting. And, uh, and we didn't break, you know, we didn't reach our goal. If we had shot the turkey that, you know, that I was set up wrong, we would have been done in 26 hours, which would have been an incredible, oh my gosh. an incredible feat. I mean, and we had that turkey. I mean, I knew I could see his red head just barely, but I couldn't shoot it. And, uh, and, and, you know, to go that many places that far and to have killed Turk, you know, four turkeys in 26 hours, it was, it would have been quite a feat, but I also think it would have been a little bit too good. Um, I think it would have come off that, we were just too good and that it was not that hard. And we no, just, just run around it. shooting them high fence birds. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and that just is not the case. And so we struggled that entire afternoon and had multiple chances at multiple turkeys and just could not. And, you know, we felt that the, the Merriam was going to be the easiest Turkey of all of them to kill, which it typically is. And so anyway, we got shut out that afternoon and by, not killing the turkey 48 hour or you know earlier and we and we went back in time a little bit it gave us more opportunity to get a, sh a bird shot that final morning and when we oh, shot okay. it at 45 hours and and 40 something minutes or whatever we you know we just had the nick of time to break the world record and then uh -huh. you know our record is a little bit different than those guys and i think that you know, if anybody wants to go out there and try to break the record um, and doing a doing a fast grand slam, it's legal to do it any way you want to do it. But for if they want to break what we did, they need to go shoot a bird in the south and uh, and shoot four birds in four different states that are purebred. We you know we think that we kind of put a little deal out there that they need to be time stamped. There needs to be a running clock, and it all needs to be done on video so there's proof. And um, and then you know I think it'll be fun next year for people. I'm assuming some people are going to go try to break this and. It'll be really fun to watch them along the way. and I may do it again. I don't know. Well, it certainly is going to be tough to break your own record. A uh, hell of a feat. Let's do this. Let's take a quick break. I want to come back, hear more about the Osceola hunt specifically and how you guys strategically had the caller uh, and you, the hunter, set up uh, throughout this experience. We'll get into that momentarily. Uh, that segment was brought to you by Stealth Cam and the Fusion wireless trail camera. You can pick one up for 
like 170 bucks these days. Data plans as low as $5 a month. There's no reason not to have one on your ranch or lease. It's the Fusion by Stealth Camp. We'll be right back with more turkey talk right here on SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Whether you're headed to the lake for crappie, the coast for redfish, or trying to put your tag on that big gobbler this spring, don't let your truck tank your next trip. Third Coast Diesels does it all. From maintenance to repairs to full diesel rebuilds, any accessory on any truck, doesn't matter. They also do lifts, wheels, tires, hell, you name it, Third Coast Diesel does it. Call David Boone at 214-326-1176 or visit thirdcoastdiesels.com. With city life seemingly getting crazier by the minute, the thought of moving out to the country is looking more appealing than ever. And Foster Farm and Ranch has been recognized as one of the nation's top ranch brokerages the past two years. They have listings in 22 counties and counting and are truly a statewide entity. Foster represents buyers and sellers from all walks of life. Farmers, ranchers, hunters, doctors, lawyers, investors, and possibly you. You can find them on Facebook, Foster Farm and Ranch, or Instagram, at Foster Ranch Sales. Of course, fosterfarmandranch.com, the website, or call chat at 830-776-3605. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at bobcatadvantage.com. Or see Bobcat Machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatofDallas.com today. Hey folks, Mike Iaconelli. I want to thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Wing Low, a little Mark David Manders bringing us back on SCI's Lone Star Outdoors show presented by Mossberg Firearms. A good friend, Mark David Manders. One time I saw Mark, and I don't know how much uh, tequila he had drank at this time of the night, but that was probably two in the morning and somebody had shot a raccoon out spotlighting and old Mark's just sitting there with his Jose Cuervo handle caping out this raccoon and before you know it, he's wearing it as a hat, just walking around. And uh, telling everybody about how he used to get 20 bucks for a raccoon pelt as a kid back in the 80s. Uh, funny little uh, tidbit there. And looking forward to seeing Mark at Guns and Guitars this year. Uh, him and Max Stalling will both be there as always. Um, this segment of the show brought to you by the new Vortex Venom Rifle Scope. It's a 5 to 25 by 56. It's the long-range shooter's dream at a price that won't break the bank. I just put one on my new uh, threaded 243 that Mossberg sent over. Uh, Henry's going to love shooting that thing, by the way, especially with that AB suppressor on there. It's going to, well, it's not going to kick. He's going to love it. Uh, you're going to love the Venom as well, and you can find it at vortexoptics.com. All right, well, let's get back into our conversation with John Casimus. We're talking turkeys as he just wrapped up a four-state Grand Slam in record time. 
Uh, John, I'm interested to find out more about the Osceola hunt down in Florida. That's a place I've never hunted, but just the diverse habitat that you know seems so different than other places that one would typically hunt turkeys. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. So it was, we, this is a, a really good friend and he just, he's retired and he has these birds and, and they're just there all the time. So I got cameras every day down there sending me pictures and they're just in the yard all day long. And right. you think it's just going to be a layup. And so we go get it set up in a blind and we, we hunt them in the afternoon. And anyway, we had this big Turkey come in, the one that we wanted to shoot. And he kind of came into our left and either saw something he didn't like in the blind or we three of us in there and something moved, but he did not like something and, and did not come in. And that should have been done there pretty quickly. And we'd have had a nice afternoon because we could have, you know, not been in such a rush to get to South Dakota, but long story short, right. At, we thought we were getting ready to start the entire hunt over again. Cause I mean, it was five or 10 minutes before it got dark. Two gobblers came out in this field about 150 yards in front of us. And they just did not want to just peck, you know, get, get, you know, eat grasshoppers and whatever they eat and, you know, pecking around this field. And they started to hit these beautiful woods to my right um, that were going in there to roost. And they went behind a palmetto. I was crawling to try to intercept them into this field. So I started crawling and I wanted to intercept them to shoot them. And so they're, they're filming me. Well, when the birds went behind this big palmetto, we're back in the woods. I just stood up and sprinted. Um, as fast as I could sprint. And then they saw, they saw the movement, even though they were behind. So they started running. So I ran, stopped, shot, and uh, ended up dropping that turkey on a dead run at like 60 yards. Oh, wow. And, uh, <laughs> and thank God, it was just like the last second um, before, you know, before the, uh, the hunt was over. And, uh, and then if we, were, if we hadn't shot that bird, we probably would have just spent the night right there, shot a turkey right there that morning. Um, which we felt like could have been fairly easy. Um, and then we would have gone to my farm, shot another turkey there and started over again. Um, so you had this little scenario going the whole time. What if, what if, what if? And if anybody knows turkeys, listen, this is not, um, it, even though they're pattern, even though you know where they are and they're hanging out, they're just so weird. And they just do such bizarre things. They don't do anything the same way twice. You mm -hmm. can't really pattern them. And anything like that and so no, we, i've got uh, one gobbler on my deer lease and, and typically we had a few jakes last year sea hens every once in a while but we're like at the the very end of uh the stretch that kind of this creek that's a finger off of the red river and most of our neighbors have clear cut for ag like it's mostly winter wheat and stuff so we have great habitat but we just are at the end of their their range in that area and we had this one gobbler i, I went Easter weekend out there just to sniff around, see if we had anything. I hadn't had any pictures of them. I've got cameras out. So I, a buddy and I went hog hunting and uh, we hear the Friday night before the season, just he's going off, going off. I was like, oh, that's exciting. I hunted that damn bird for probably five or six. I shot him the second day. I shot him and it didn't kill him. And he, uh, he was coming in. I'm making all this racket. And the more aggressive I got, the more excited he got. And this hen came between me and him as he's strutting toward my decoy. Oh, gosh. And he, so he starts going after the hen. And I'm like, all right, he's like 50 yards. And I shot him and I just didn't hit him in the head. I shot him broadside and it didn't hurt him. I mean, he I was I was hoping that I would get pictures of him again. Sure enough, I got pictures of him uh, that afternoon. He's fine. And I've tried to hunt him like five full days since then. He doesn't come to calls. So I was like, OK, I took my son out there. 
And we were just going to, he's eight and we were just going to deer hunt him, basically sit in a blind and just wait for him. Wait for him. Yeah. Never. He wouldn't come. He wouldn't come. You know, he'd be some other camera somewhere else. And I don't know, they, for such a, what we say is such a dumb animal. They sure do get wary, uh, especially if they've been pressured. Man, they really do. And, you know, it just made this when you're having the when you start feeling that pressure for the amount of time at what we're working on or working against the clock and the amount of travel that we did. I was the one flying the airplane, so I was really tired and it was a tremendous amount of travel, not a lot of sleep. And I think after the first day, that next day, it felt like I'd been on this trip for like a week and a half and it, we'd only been gone like not even 24 hours. Wow. So, yeah. so what kind of airplane are you guys hopping around on? So we were flying a PC-12, which is a single-engine turboprop made in Switzerland. It's a it, it hauls a ton. It can land on small runways. It's got a really long range. I think our flight from uh, – we had a 60-knot headwind going up to Kansas that night, had an 1,100-mile trip, and I think it took uh, right at five hours um, to get there and landed at about 1, 1.30 in the morning. And we got to a little little flea bag hotel in, in Lyon, Kansas, and we went there, and I think I took a shower and – sat put my hunting clothes on and and set my alarm i slept one hour and then we got up it was 25 degrees and uh we went out to a farm and of all things we're set up on these these birds where we watch these birds roost the day before the, the guide and anyway casey duty who's an amazing hunter and anyway we're sitting there and i saw a light kind of through this we're i was on the edge of this big ag field and and by this farmer's house and I could see through the trees and I was like, saw a light and I was like, wow, it must be like a far off, like car driving down a farm road a long way off. Well, long story short, there was a guy poaching, trying to come set up on these turkeys, um, walking through the woods and walk within 30, 40 yards of these birds with a flashlight on, oh you know, first of all, who's poaches with a flashlight yeah. and he yeah. walks in there. And so luckily, long story short, I'm assuming he probably got set up and saw our decoys and maybe snuck out of there, but he didn't end up bumping the birds and the birds pitched down. And it was just one of those perfect mornings where two big gobs, um, the bird, the, they, the decoys were to my left and they were to the right. And uh, my buddy did an amazing job calling and he just called them straight in and we shot them and that hunt from daylight to, to that those birds getting shot was like not even 10 minutes. So then we were able to get in the airplane and go to South Dakota and thought we had her licked with having a full day in South Dakota and we got our butts whipped. Yeah. Well, they'll do that to you. And yeah. the, the interesting thing is, so you're flying all over the country, you're hitting these birds at different peaks of the breeding season. You know, I mean, it sounds like Florida, probably the end of the breeding season. Yeah, they were done. Those birds were done. They've been pressured a lot and they just, they were not having any part of anything. It was just pure, like I had to run and, and shoot that bird running yeah. through the woods on the way to roost and uh, real weary. And then, the, you know, the birds in Alabama, they were, it was a tough year in Alabama. They just really never got going really well. Um, and it was really bizarre. Everybody kind of had the same thing, but we got lucky and found two birds that at nine o'clock in the morning that would respond. And they came from 300 to 400 yards away from us and came up out of a bottom uh, and walked down a road to get shot. And, uh, and then the bird in Kansas was not a problem. And then, you know, the bird, we, we, the birds in South Dakota were real early. It was super early on those turkeys and they were really hinned up and, we call these that original bird right out of the steep little ravine. And he came up to see what was going on. But, you know, it's like everything else. I mean, I think I learned so much every time I hunt, which is why I like to hunt, um, especially when I'm hunting big game with my bow. But, you know, we I, the biggest thing I would say turkey hunt wise when it comes to using decoys, unless you're really trying to get a great video and you want the bird to attack the decoy and all that. the And you know where the birds are coming from. 
you're way better off to have the decoy 100, 150 yards past you, um, way out of out of the, the the threatening zone for a turkey. You catch a two-year-old, he's going to be scared to death. But if you put it far enough away, like the last bird we shot the last morning, we had the decoy down to my right 120 yards. He was 400 yards, 300 yards to my left. He could, he was a little bit elevated on an ag field. We we're on the edge of the woods. And so he saw that, that strutter we had way down there. And it was really dark that morning, kind of real dusky still. And he once, you know how gobbler gets laser locked when they all of a sudden they start doing this. Oh yeah. And they go back and they do that and they go that. And that means they are full blown locked on that bird and they're, they're coming. And he did that. And so by that bird being a hundred and something yards down, it brought him right down there in front of us. Um, and it wasn't threatening to him and he felt safe and he still could do his thing, put on a show and he, and he covered the distance that we needed him to in a very short period of time to get that done. And that's kind of what the biggest thing I learned on that trip and that turkeys are still crazy. Yeah. And so do, do you turkey hunt quite a bit? I do turkey hunt quite a bit, but I really, honestly, uh, I'm obsessed with bow hunting and that's my big thing. You know, I'm sponsored by Hoyt and a bunch of companies in Badlands and, um, my, my big thing is mule deer hunting and elk hunting and they've killed some, just some giant, giant mule deer. And, uh, and that's kind of my big passion. I love being in the woods at my place. I love turkeys, but I really like photographing turkeys and filming them. Um, I really don't, you know, have to kill them anymore. Um, I just love them at my farm. I like looking at them. And so, um, I like calling them for other people or filming somebody else. The thing about turkey hunting to me is if you're on a turkey hunt and you watch a turkey get come in real close and get shot, it doesn't really matter to me who shoots it because it's yeah. really it's not that challenging um, just to shoot a turkey with a shotgun. And so um, it's just me to more about the interaction with them and filming them and being. I able thought to that too until it. opening morning in that gobbler. <laughs> yeah, well, when, they, when one makes you mad like that and you're after one, then yeah, you uh, kinda, it kind of gets personal. But uh, I just don't have the the desire to just go smash and kill a ton of turkeys. I just yeah. love being close to me and watch them. You know, I want to feel them and I want that I want that drumming to kind of like. I can feel that vibration on my body and I love to watch them strut and I love getting great pictures of them. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, so you guys had a pretty, uh, a good system there then. So someone was calling for you just, uh, yeah, we just had to have, I had to have, I had to have the caller in order to get the birds to do what we needed them to do and to get them in shooting range in the quickest yeah. amount of time. I had to have my caller kind of like when an elk hunt, you know, back behind me or down past me yeah. to get the bird to come and uh and where he could move around and not be um and not be you know detected um and so that really helped us um especially on the the south the uh kansas morning uh and then also in alabama that helped us it hurt us uh a lot the first morning because we were we were stuck together mm -hmm. um within 10 yards of each other and we were open and we couldn't move and it just we sat there for an hour and a half and had to listen to nine gobblers gobbling 50 yards behind us and yeah, I could have just turned around and shot it, but we wouldn't have gotten it on camera. Uh, I couldn't, the camera guy was not close. I, I, you know, made the mistake of having him 10 yards from me and he should have been sitting on the tree with me. And, but it just, you know, we learned and I learned a lot. If I was going to do this again, I know exactly how to do what I, what I did and do it better for sure this time. So you mentioned elk hunting. I, I don't miss the September archery season. I drew New Mexico this year. Um, what about, what are your plans? So I, um, every year I, I have a place in Alberta and uh -huh. so I hunt mule deer, whitetail, elk, and bear every year. Of course, COVID, uh, the border's been shut in Canada, um, which is I've missed a black bear hunt three times now. Yep. And it's put me into a massive <laughs> depression. 
um, to be honest with you. But uh, it, it appears that it will probably get open before before the end of August this year. Uh, I'll be going up there to elk hunt, mule deer hunt, and whitetail hunt, bear hunt uh, early, in late August, and then uh, early September I go uh, to camp. I mean to Colorado, and I'm hunting uh, where I hunted last year. I shot a a 351 last year um, and early the first week of the season. And uh, it's a little more challenging then, but it's uh, it, it really, I like it because I I'm fit enough to get up in the high mountains and I was able to see 41 bighorn sheep rams one day in one day um, up on this big, big mountain. And um, I like getting up there after them early season. And so you don't have the activity. It's not quite the bugling and all that, but you, it's, you know, you have to kind of be fit and it's kind of spot and stalk as well as, you know, they will come in, but just not as much, but I'm doing that. And then um, I'm going to try to squeeze another one in if I can uh, get one done. I just hadn't figured it out. I've got, I've got a couple options. And then my mule deer hunt, I hunt uh, Alberta every year and I hunt uh, Eastern Colorado every year. And, uh, and I put in for a bunch of other draws. I just, I don't know if I've gotten anything yet or not. So, okay. I use WTA to do all my, my stuff. So I don't even know what they applied for. I just tell them to apply for everything and <laughs> just tell me what, <laughs> tell me what hits. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, awesome stuff, man. That's a, that's a hell of a, of a Turkey Trek uh, grand slam and under 46 hours. Um, thanks for jumping on and for a great yeah. class too. Kudos to you guys for, for raising some money for the uh, NWTF. Yeah, it was, I think, you know, what we did was for a really good cause. And I think what was really exciting, we had a lot of people engaged and watching. We did a lot of this live on social media and the, and the, the engagement of people who are non hunters um, was fascinating to me that people who don't hunt will probably never hunt, but were very, very engaged in what we were doing and watching and kind of on their edge of their seat all the time with all the live broadcasts of where we were and where we were going. And I think people really kind of got into it. I had people that were running, you know, CEOs of billion dollar companies that were saying, Hey man, I haven't gotten any work done in two days. Uh, I've been watching this and I'm riveted to what's going on, but you, you know, this is killing my work um, efficiency, but so we had a real fun time with it. We did uh, raise a lot of money and, it, and we're happy and we'll probably pick a different charity next year and, and do something a little different. We'll find something to do to, to, to raise some money to, to give back. So you mentioned you have a, a cooking show. Uh, so I'm assuming you do some wild game cooking then. What's your favorite uh, wild turkey recipe? Man, you know, we, I've never had turkey better than taking the breast and stripping it. And then we, we marinate it or soak it in buttermilk uh, with mm -hmm. a lot of salt and pepper and some garlic salt overnight. Uh, and then we take it and kind of clean it all off. We don't rinse it with water, but we get, get all the buttermilk off. And then we re-season it with salt, pepper, and garlic salt. And then we just put it in flour uh, and, and, and dredge it in flour. No, no other um, soak or mixture or anything, no more liquid. And put it in flour and fry it in peanut oil. And they are the best, one of the best meals that you'll ever have at my place. And we, we have some great meals. If you follow me on social media, you'll see some insane food cooked at my farm. Um, but it's, that's the way I like it the most. And then I take the carcass and I will, uh, boil the carcass and make really good stock out of that. Uh -huh. And then I take that and, and usually either make it, make a pasta sauce with it, or I'll make soup or, or something like that. But, awesome. uh, yeah, my, my cooking show is darn hungry and it's, um, sponsored by spot point camera. And we've got, we, we launch an episode every month and, um, there are four episodes out right now. Uh, the last, the last weekend of the month is when, um, we launch a new one. And they're about six, seven minutes or, and they're real simple recipes. Everything's made from scratch that won't break the bank, that tastes great. And that are, that are something that any average cook can do. And that was the purpose of, of this is just to get people who may be a little intimidated by cooking to go out there and to want to try something and, 
and, and see if they can make a recipe and cook for their friends and family and just learn how to do maybe one thing really well. Awesome. Well, it's called Darn Hungry. Darn Hungry. Yep. Okay. I'll check out the YouTube and uh, I'll be sure to give you a follow on social as well. And I look forward to watching the, uh, how long is the, the video of the uh, turkey? The, yeah. So the turkey hunt, the, the whole thing is 27 minutes. Okay. Um, and so it shows all four hunts, the travel, um, all, all the moving around, the planning and all that. So it's, it's really well put together. Those guys at ICT did a great job. And, uh, and then I have a, on that YouTube channel, there are some other hunts. I've got some of my big hunts I'm going to launch in, in August. Like I killed a 235 mule deer spotting stalk um, that's going to be on there and some other really big. I've got a, a Bayswar Ibex I killed in Turkey. And, and wow. so I'm going to continue to add a, a lot of hunts to my, to my channel. And they're just some real short little hunts. And they're not like crazy professionally done, but um, they're raw. And, um, but it's the real deal of, of getting out there and spotting and stalking with a boat. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I look forward to checking all of that out and Thank certainly you. appreciate your time. Yeah, I really appreciate you as well. And uh, I look forward to talking to you soon. All right, John. Take it easy, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. All right. There he goes. John Casimus, the new world record holder for taking the North American Turkey Slam in a matter of well, under two days. Um, so crazy stuff there. And uh, I can imagine lots of energy drinks on that adventure. Uh, that segment of the show Brought to you by John X Safari's trip number, well, it'll be trip number six, but it's booked for July of 2022. If you want to be a part of that adventure with me, shoot me an email, LoneStarOutdoorShow at gmail.com. We'll be hunting on South Africa's Eastern Cape once again. Plains game, Big Five, you name it, they've got it all. And, man, the accommodations are awesome. The food is amazing. You'll be one-on-one with your own pH for the week. It's the trip of a lifetime. And that's why I keep going back to have that experience again and again. For more info on that trip, just shoot me an email and I will get you sorted out with the details. Unfortunately, we are out of time for today. Thanks to uh, Mark Schwabenlander as well as John Casimus, both of our guests. We'll do it again next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of SCI's Lone Star Outdoor Show. Until then, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. <laughs>